everybody. Or maybe only the one body who's dreaming all of this, and that's you. On the other hand, you might be inherently plural, so hello, everybody. I'm Layman Pascal on behalf of myself, Bruce Alderman, and all the overlapping liminal integrative metamodern networks here with another conversation on the Integral Dreamland series. And joining me to talk about the nature of dream work with a special emphasis on the subtle domain as it is instantiated in the somatic experience of bodies is Karen. Hi, Karen. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Layman. How are you? Oh, good. Very nice to see your smiling face. Karen, what's a subtle body? Oh boy, you're going to start with a really easy question. <laughs> so, I mean, I also like the term energy body, uh, and I use them kind of interchangeably because we're energetic beings, and the I think the deepest level of our experience and the most subtle level of our of our experience is the is the subtle is the energy body. And the somatic, the body, the physical body, or what we call somatic body in psychology, is sort of a bridge to the subtle body. Um, and so the subtle body for me is really where we experience the, the energetic part of our being. And that can happen, you know, energy kind of follows the laws of physics. So it can either be, simply put, it can either be in a contracted state or in an expansive flowing state. Those are kind of the two, if you want to put a polarity on it. And so when we start to notice where is our body constricted, where do we feel tension, tightness, holding, that's the subtle body in a constricted state. And when we're in you know, a blissful state, you might even say orgasm is a kind of the, the energy that's really flowing through the body in an orgasmic state, whether it's a sexual orgasm or a spiritual type of orgasm or orgasmic state. So we can see that continuum. It's maybe easier to talk about it in experiential terms, the continuum between when we're contracted, when we feel tension and constriction, and when we feel kind of a spacious opening and a flow of energy through our bodies, that's that's one way to identify the subtle body is what's it doing? Is it constricted or open and flowing? Nice. I've often heard the subtle body talked about as if it has kind of two polarities uh, in the old theosophical terminology, an astral and a vital or etheric polarity. But I think it's easy for people to understand how the astral or the imaginal uh, fits with dreams, right? We see a lot of things in dreams as if it's a kind of movie theater. But where does the other aspect, the aspect of energy in the body, somatic and proprioceptive intelligence, where does that intersect with our dreams? So I, I actually coined a term in my dissertation called the somatic understructure of dreams. There's, you know, most of the dream work looks at uh, the symbolism, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on interpreting the symbols in our dreams. And then, you know, people move into emotions, the emotional states that accompany our dreams. But the, the other level that isn't talked about so much in conventional psychology is the somatic level. So when I use the term somatic understructure, what I'm saying is that all of those dreams that are symbolic and have an emotional emotional content, many of them, 
also are configured in the body in a certain way. And, um, you know, if we wake up from a dream and our mind just takes over instantly, we will miss all of that. If we just launch right back into our waking personality, we will miss this subtler dimension of how the dreams break up our kind of conventional waking personality. They bring something new, that's something different that's outside of the, the standard personality. But if when we wake up, we just reinstate the waking personality on top of whatever the dream opening brought, we will miss you know, all of those subtler levels. On the other hand, if we cultivate practices, you know, if we suspend the waking mind and bring in an observational awareness for that opening that comes with the dreams and start noticing the layers and how the dreams create these openings, these, these energetic openings. And those openings, Eugene Genlin said, are sort of the key. They're like a growth direction. They're a way that the dreams are trying to create a more expansive person personality than our habitual personality is. And that each dream is sort of a tiny, he calls it a tiny piece of that. You know, it's a, they're, they're incremental steps that the dreams create these openings. But we have, to, we have to get our mind out of the way, the mind that wants to clamp down on whatever's unfamiliar. Sometimes that dream material is taboo. It's, you know, it's dark, it can be dark imagery. It, it can also be exceedingly blissful imagery that is also uncomfortable because we're not used to being in such a expanded state. So to get to, to work with this, this subtler level, this under somatic understructure, we really have to learn to suspend the mind or let the mind take a back seat and bring in, you know, more of an observational awareness of what is actually trying to happen. And the assumption is that there's a deep intelligence in the body, that the body, the energy body, the dream body, the dreaming mind all have something to bring us that is beyond, you know, our normal constricted personality or more constricted personality that they participate in this more vast realm and also the archetypal realm of, and that they know our developmental, you know, our developmental next step. I mean, I like to say that our dreams are, you know, better than a spiritual teacher because they give us the piece of wisdom that we need for that day, that moment in our own unique embodiment. No, no almost no spiritual teacher can do that because they're teaching to a group of people. So there's a very refined wisdom in the dreams about our own developmental unfolding that I don't think you can get anywhere else. So you mentioned that going too quickly into the waking state persona includes our ability to access this other information. So are you sort of suggesting that we should spend time in the in the moment or phase of awakening paying some kind of extra attention to the way that our bodily experience is relating to whatever dream content we still have access to absolutely that's exactly what i'm advocating i mean there's a term for this state between sleep sleep and dream and waking and it's called hypnopompia it's kind of the counterpart to hypnagogia which people most people know the term hypnagogia it's all those sort of fantasies that happen 
or imagery that happens while you're sort of drifting off into sleep. But the, the state coming out of sleep is called hypnopompia. And it is a rich gold mine of subtle information. Because think of it, we've been for some number of hours, not eight for me usually, but, but some number of hours we've been in this deep, deep sleep, deep dreaming state, you know, the deep, the dreamless sleep, sleep state. We've been in an altered consciousness for hours and hours and we're coming out. So there's a lot of transformation that happens from our normal waking consciousness through those many hours of being, of being outside of our, you know, adaptive personalities. And so it's a big altered state. Uh, but most people, if you wake up to an alarm clock, it just, you know, rushes you out of it in a kind of an abrupt manner. Uh, so yeah, if you can linger in that waking, initial waking state, what some people call a twilight state, you will access, if you develop a practice, you will access a lot of subtle information um, and uh, energetic, sort of energetic, subtle shifts, uh, or sometimes dramatic. I mean, this is actually how I started paying attention to this realm. I was working with a Jungian analyst, and the focus was on the symbolic content and the emotional content of dreams. But I was having these big body experiences, you know, just sort of altered, completely altered uh, from my normal self. And I asked my, my Jungian analyst, well, what do I, you know, what do I do with this? Can we work with this? And she basically said, well, the symbolism will tell us what the energies, these opening energetic openings are trying to do. And I think that's true. The symbolism is a guide to what the energies are. But I was still confronted with, with an energetic opening. In fact, if I didn't participate in that opening, I would end up with migraine headaches. So there it was for me, you know, it's like there's an opening trying to happen. And if I clamp down on that opening, you know, it shows up right here, you know, as a band of tension. And that's, you know, I kind of had to surrender and say, well, something's, something's happening here. You know, I'm going to, if I shut this down, I will end up in pain and, you know, in a, in a symptom state instead of in an energetic opening state. So it was very clear for me that I needed to find tools and practices to, to open to this dimension and not shut it down. Maybe other people have the option, but I think sometimes once you open the door, <laughs> it keeps pushing you to keep opening that door, right? Yeah, that reminds me of the classic old book by Gopi Krishna about Kundalini, where he's experiencing these somatic activities in the body, but he's got no, no knowledge, no background, no peer support. And so he doesn't know how to participate with it. And as a result, he undergoes years of extremely adverse symptoms until he finds somebody who can help him start to work with it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Kundalini because the, you know, the main Western people that I that I mentioned to you previously who've done somatic dream work, Eugene Gedlin is one of them, Robert Bosnack is one of them, and uh, Arnold Mendel, they've all they they're all very foundational. But 
you know, for example, Eugene Genlin talks about this growth direction and these incremental steps. But if you work those incremental steps kind of over time in a longitudinal way, you know, consistently as a practice, what you will end up with is a kundalini kind of opening. I mean, what I found in my own dreams was that my dreams would target, it's like they targeted a certain chakra over a period of time and tried to help work out the conflicts in the, the knots, what they call the knots in the East, tried to work out those, those knots. Uh, and then if yeah, over time, they will target all of the chakras uh, and kind of put a laser beam on each chakra. And then eventually, if you work that process, you will have a full stream opening uh, in the body. And uh, it's quite, quite beautiful process that I would say that flow state is, is the sort of the optimal state of human embodiment is to be in that, in that subtle flow. And I had, again, you know, why I felt so much pressure to take this path is because I had conflicts, I had traumas in almost every single chakra in my body. So I had a lot of layered kind of constriction and tension uh, nodding that I had to work through um, and allow, you know, to come to come into a flow state. And, and the dreams will, I mean, I think the dreams are really sort of um, catalysts for maybe a subtler type of kundalini opening, because as you described in the example, when people have a full kundalini opening all at once, they, they don't know how to handle it. It's, it's really sort of um, shattering to their former personality and it's very difficult, but the dreams will do it in a more incremental way that I think we can, we can participate with. I uh, appreciate that you say Eugene Gendlin because that's how I've always said it. But sometimes I hear people say Gendlin, and I, I'm not sure who's correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know either, but uh, he's, <laughs> he he did give us a big gift. I mean, I think of the of the three people that I mentioned. If people start with Eugene Gendlin's, his the title of his book is "Let Your Body Interpret Your Dreams," and the idea is. It's it, that actually that the, the body can provide a correction to a wrong symbolic interpretation. So the idea is that if you interpret a dream or a dream image in a way that brings more constriction in the body, that is not the, that's probably not the right interpretation. The right interpretation is, or the right understanding, we could say, if you don't want to lay a heavy word like interpretation on, the right understanding of a dream is the is the understanding that participates in that opening in that expansion that the dreams are working toward an expansive in an expansive direction and that if the interpretation is is reductive in some way it's it's misunder it's a misunderstanding of of what the dream was trying to bring and i'll i'll just say one other thing about this the way that the dreams bring kind of a laser beam to how they create the openings in the sh in the individual chakras is they bring a laser beam. Maybe it's the imagery and maybe it's also the somatic state together. Uh, for example, you know, a classic dream of a constricted throat chakra is somebody's in a crisis in their dream. They're facing some challenge. And when they try to call for help, 
nothing comes out of their throat, right? They can't, or in some cases they're trying to, they make a phone call to get help and there's no one on the other end, right? Those are kind of classic throat chakra dreams where the speech function is not, you know, it's not working in a really vital moment. And it, often if you pro if you have one of those dreams, you probably wake up with a sense of constriction in your throat. And so then you might have another dream where you're singing or where you're, you know, where that throat chakra, you're speaking truth to power or something, you know, you're, that throat chakra is completely open and expressing in its fullness. And you're going to feel, you know, the, the somatic accompaniment of that is going to be, you know, a sense of opening and spaciousness in the throat. So, and this is true of all the chakras, you know, that they can be again in this, either in this constricted state or in an open state. And what the dreams do, they do it in two ways. They do kind of a push and a pull. So they will, they will, they will amplify the constriction and make it more intense so that it registers in your consciousness. Maybe you have a, con a chronic holding pattern. Again, we could just stick with the throat in the throat that you're not aware of, but the dream will come along and show you that constriction by sort of exaggerating it and, and creating the, the symptoms, the, the constriction that goes with it. Or they will amplify what it would be like for that chakra to be in an open state, in an open expressive state. And so it helps the dreamer to differentiate in, in a particular chakra, Oh, this is the constriction. Oh, this is the opening. You know, since we we would live with our habitual somatic patterns with a lot of unconsciousness. You know, we maybe think they're normal or we're not, we don't even notice them. But the dream will amplify them so that they're intense, that you you get it. And then you see the difference between the constriction and the opening. And then you're left with the choice of do I want to align with the constriction or do I want to align with the opening? So that's how they sort of systematically almost work toward opening chakras. And I'm making it sound more linear than it is. I mean, but I have found that, you know, in a certain period of time, maybe the, the, the dreams are focusing on a, on a particular chakra and then they go and work on another one and then they come back, you know, it's, it's a little more random than it's not a linear process, but, but um, they definitely target the chakras. Uh, in their, you know, in their attempt to create a more vital, open person. So without being too linear, the dreams are uh, taking up somatic configurations in the body and creating um, dramatic scenarios that amplify either their restriction or their opening. And then we can respond to that by testing interpretations against the felt sense of the body and looking for one that resonates with us and produces opening. Right. I mean, they, I think they, yeah, exactly. You got it. Well, and I don't know if I have anything to add to that. They, they, I mean, they, the cognitive, cause the mind needs to participate in the, in the new understanding that the dream brings. I mean, dreams definitely also bring new cognitive awareness, new, they reframe our concepts also to 
more expansive, more inclusive frameworks. So if the mind takes an opening of the dream and, and shuts it down, and you can feel that constriction in the body or the, you know, Gendlin, Gendlin or Gendlin says, the energy wants to flow, it wants to move. And so if we create an interpretation that stops that energetic flow or movement, then we should be suspicious of our interpretation and try to say, well, you know, what is this dream bringing that's new? Uh, you know, and that's a good question for any dream. Uh, what is this dream bringing that's to tell me something I don't know already? Sometimes they tell us things we already know, but we don't know them. We know them sort of superficially, but we haven't really ingested that knowledge. And so they will come and, you know, um, confirm or exaggerate the knowledge, as you said, to try to, I mean, dreams, dreams are great exaggerators, you know, <laughs> to get their point, you know, they will exaggerate, they will, you know, give you some pretty stark imagery. And also, you know, the body state. So if I can tell you one of my own dreams that really brought this energetic teaching home to me, I was standing on a corner, it was actually near my house at the time, it was a it was sort of a dangerous intersection in waking life. It, the street came down and then it made a sharp bend to the right. It was kind of a country road. And if people missed that curve, they would run into an embankment. And so then frequently there were accidents at this particular area. So that's the, the context for the dream. So I was at that intersection with my grandmother and my dog who were at that time in my life, my most beloved, my most beloveds. Uh, the people that the beings that I had kind of an unconditional mutual love with back and forth. I was standing there with them at this dangerous intersection or problematic intersection. And all of a sudden I realized something was coming at us and everything was about to change, but it was a split second. I didn't have time to do anything about it. So this car, this sort of red vehicle comes and hits us, the three of us, and Noxus were to the other side. I mean, we're gone from this dimension. So I'm on the other side or in a new dimension of reality and I lost track of the other two. I realized this is a solitary journey. And uh, my first thought, what I was, to, I was disoriented. And my first thought was how do I get my bearings in this new dimension of reality? And I realized that I was in a vortex, a vortex of energy that was narrow at one end and expansive at the other, like a cone, right? And I decided I'm going in the expansive direction. It was this simple choice, go narrow or go wide. So I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go wide. So I traveled through this vortex, expanding out, expanding, expanding. And I come to the end of it and I realize the wide end of the first vortex is the narrow end of the next vortex. And so again, I'm faced with the same choice, expand or contract, you know? And so again, I choose the expansive direction. This happens several times, three or four times that I'm literally faced with the choice, expand or contract. I mean, it was just so simple. So I keep making the expansive choice and I'm like, traveling out through space 
And at the end of the dream, I'm like this light body particle at the far edge of, of the universe where there's complete spaciousness, nothing impinging on me. I mean, it's just total at one with, you know, space with expansiveness and in a complete bliss state. I mean, it was, it was really extraordinary. So that dream was very direct about you have this choice, you know, you can expand or you can contract. And um, it's true in every moment that, that, that decision is available to us. Waking moments as well as, you know, as well as this opening that the dreams bring. So I think it's kind of a cosmic choice. <laughs> um, if you want to go big, you know, that is our choice in, in a way in every, in every moment. That anecdote reminded me of a time, an incident I had with an intersection. And this was some years ago, I've been invited to be part of a group that was looking at the educational possibilities of virtual reality technology. So the whole group went down to this place and we put the devices on and went through like several dozen different worlds. <laughs> and then we had to go out and cross the street and go back to the workspace. And I was standing at the intersection and I, I couldn't tell what was real. I thought maybe I could vault the street. It was all my waking state had become very dreamlike. All right. And there are other conditions, whether it's meditation or hypnosis or drugs where your waking state becomes very dreamlike. And there are also forms of art and entertainment that strike us as very dreamlike. Mm -hmm. Do you think some of these same developmental and energetic processes are at work in other conditions that we find to be dreamlike? Or, or is there something special about dreams and they don't really show up in these other dreamlike zones? No, I mean, I think certainly other altered state experiences, you know, participate in the same in the same dynamics, you know, people take and have an ayahuasca experience and it, it reveals, you know, both the, the sort of the shadow of the habitual personality, as well as the, the big grand possibilities, you know, the vast expansiveness of, of potential. So no, I think it happens in other places. What is different about dreams? I mean, I guess, What's distinctive about dreams is that they, if, I mean, I'm kind of Jungian in my orientation, that there's an intelligence that is, try, that is fighting in a way, fighting for our development, fighting for our greater possibility, our, our, the realization of our human potential. And it's consistent. And you don't have to pay anybody. And you don't have to go anywhere. You just lay down in your bed, you know, and go to sleep. I mean, obviously there are certain conditions that we can create that create deeper dreaming experiences. What we were talking about earlier, how we receive the dreams. Or do we have a space in the, in the morning or when we wake to be with that energy without an interruption, you know, but I think, you know, the consistency of dreams the idea that there is, I mean, I, I sometimes use the metaphor in my own life. The dreams for me have been like a persistent lover. Like they just seek me out again and again with new information, with new imagery that is, you know, eliciting my next growth step in a way, kind of incrementally. So the dreams give us, if we pay attention to them over the course of our lifetime, they give us these increments on a daily basis, 
or near daily basis. They give us these incremental growth steps. It's like a trail of a trail of crumbs in the woods, you know. We can pick up each crumb and sometimes they feel like crumbs. So, you know, sometimes they feel crummy. Uh, sometimes they feel insignificant. But what I've learned is they're smarter than me. <laughs> they know more about my total well-being than my, you know, my ego personality, that my ego personality is really the small me and that they're coming from this much bigger, bigger sense of who I could be. I like that sense of uh, humble participation with the dream <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> yeah. I've got a curiosity yeah. from earlier because I was thinking about the phrase energy body. And it always seems to me like people don't clarify what they mean a lot of the time because the energy body could be just the basic bioelectricity in the physical body that we often ignore. It could be some additional kind of energy that we think isn't really codified in our physics, or it could be a metaphor for just how to live in a flowing way in a complex universe. For you, is it one of those, all of those, or does it not matter? I mean, there definitely is a physiological basis for the energy body. Um, and I think, you know, you can, it's, it's tied into the nervous system, right? If we want to get, you know, anatomical about it, that the nervous system is the conduit for the energy body. Uh, I would say, you know, if you want to get in the, in the, in more of a physical or physiological sense. And those chakras that have been identified, you know, since timeless, you know, ancient wisdom of people that obviously were paying attention, you know, they didn't have their devices, they weren't so distracted as, as we are, um, and didn't have so many options, right, for other things to pay attention to. So this, this wisdom, this esoteric wisdom, you know, really developed. And I, you know, in my own experience, my, they did, they described pretty well, you know, the, some of the fundamental aspects of the energy body. But the, but the thing is these, the chakras that they, especially in India, these seven chakras or nine, whatever number that were identified, they have a high overlap with the major organs in the body. And these major organs are fed by nerve ganglia, right? They're concentrations of nerves in the same places that the chakras are. There's an overlap between the, between the, the, the major organs along the spinal column and the, the chakra system. So there is a physiological basis. It's not just woo-woo, you know, it's not made up stuff. There is a, there is a network of, of nerves that make these chakras, you know, that allow for them to have a, a kind of their own mode of perception. Uh, Jung used the term psychic localization for the chakras, right? That the chakras have their own, each chakra has its own sort of mode of perception or sense of perception. And that is made possible by, you know, by this rich um, network of nerve nerves that feed those chakras. So that, that would be my answer, you know, is that there is a basis, a physical basis or a physiological basis and the nervous system, you know, in the nervous system for 
these kundalini experiences or chakra experiences or energy body experiences. Is that, does that yeah, address? That's great. Yeah, <laughs> I think it does. Yeah. It made me think of, um, I know some people whose approach to psychic localizations is, is to very actively just get in there and make them open as if it was a kind of muscular exercise almost, right? If you find one, it's contracted, you can just learn to open it, go through all of them, just open them, open them, open them until the current is flowing through and that will maximize your development. But that could be done without working through interpretations and content and symbols and hints that the dreams are providing, right? So if a person was just constantly directly opening their centers, and getting to a sense of flow and opening that way, what would they be missing? What would they not be getting that they could get through working with, say, dreams? I mean, if they can do that, I, I have all power <laughs> through them, you know? I mean, I think, you know, in my case, I can just say there was so much trauma in my body that I couldn't have done that on my own. You know, I really needed the help of the imagery. But you know, I stand by what I said earlier that I think the optimal state of development for an embodied human being is is an internal flow state. I mean, of course, when Chikset Mahai wrote about flow states, a lot of it was about doing an activity that puts you in flow. But what I'm talking about is an inner inner flow, the Kundalini flow, where you've adjusted your your body so that you're participating your consciousness so that you're participating with a natural flow that wants to happen but if somebody can get there you know into a flow state without their dreams hey go for it <laughs> no i mean they dream i mean the dreams may help them at some point i don't know also i think you know this idea of a muscular or kind of a i mean the ego trying to open the the kundalini energy for me is a little bit of an oxymoron because it's a lot of surrender. For me, it's a lot of surrender. It's a lot of surrendering, you know, the mind to this energetic flow state as a better idea than whatever my mind came up with. So, but, you know, certainly there are, if, if people do rigorous practices, which could be related to what you're talking about, a very rigorous discipline practice, to open the kundalini energy yeah that's um if they can get there they can get there you know they may get a little help from their dreams even if their dreams aren't their primary modality they may get help at times you know okay. i'll let them know that karen says it's fine <laughs> <laughs> if it's working it's fine <laughs> i mean i do take the you know i do take the body as sort of the final just the way I do with the individual dreams, you know, that the body and the flow state is the, is the final, in a way, I would say arbiter of truth um, in this realm. One of the things that comes up for me in this series is a kind of pondering about what's the earliest dream I can remember in my life. Uh, and I'm curious if you have any outstanding early life dreams or any dreams that made you think, Oh, this is very interesting. It's not just something that happens to us. I might be a kind of person who's intrigued by dreams. 
You know, I, I'm trying to remember my childhood dreams. I remember my brother used to have nightmares and uh, would tell them, you know, as a kid, I, if I, I probably did too, but I think I've blocked them out. I mean, a lot of kids have terror dreams. I'm sure I had some terror dreams. I can tell you a dream I had about a very early infant state. So my dreams have helped me remember, you know, infancy experiences. And well, the, the core of it for me, actually birth experiences. I had, this is where the trauma began. I had quite a quite a bit of birth trauma. So I've been working through a lot. And I could just say about that, you know, if people have early trauma, especially birth trauma or infancy trauma, chances are we block out memory of that. And but that what happens is, you know, the infant is and the neonate is in a very open kind of energetically open state unformed you might say and if trauma comes in early it creates a big you know shattering and a kind of contraction and i think this is what's fed my energy body dream life is that there was so much compression and contraction of my energetic self from a couple of different layers of early trauma that it forced, you know, it in a way forced me to be on this path. So, but I did have this dream a number of years ago where I was, and also, and I'll just say also, if you dream of an infant in doing something or in some state or something happening to it, it's likely you. It's not whoever's pictured in the dream. It's probably a picture of you in your infancy, of some aspect of your infancy. So those dreams really are bring us really good early information. So in this dream, I was an infant or there was an infant and the infant was sort of cocking its head. It clearly was not very mobile yet. And toward my father's voice, which was somewhere behind me, but I was, I was angling my body and my awareness toward my father's voice. And well, the new information that dream brought me was that my father, more than my mother, was an orientation point for me as an infant. You know, most people would think it's the mother, but my mother was very overwhelmed with two other kids, young kids and other things. And so she wasn't that much of a presence, but it showed me how early my father became, you know, an anchor point for me, a, a place that I turned to uh, for connection for, you know, whatever. I mean, I was a father's daughter. Uh, and that that was the beginning moment of the father's daughter right there, angling toward my father as an infant. So um, not exactly the, the, the question you were asking, but how I got into this, into dream work, was I was working as a prison chaplain in the, in my late 20s, around first Saturn return. And um, I was working with people with AIDS. I was a chaplain assigned to an AIDS unit. And simultaneously, I was going to death row. This was in the state of New Jersey. There was one woman on death row at the time. And the administrator of the prison, what we used to call warden, asked me to go see her. So here I am working with people with AIDS who were mostly within five years or so of my age, they were young, 
dying of AIDS, people dying, probably about one, one a week was dying. So I'm in this death ward, basically, of young people uh, who, you know, were close, close to my age that I identified with, at least from an age standpoint. Then I'm going up to death row, which is one of the most haunting places probably in the whole culture is to walk into a, a death row ward. I mean, the heaviness, the unprocessed psychic energy in a death, in a death row ward is truly, it's there. It's, it's, I mean, I don't know what you, where you would go to find something comparable to that in terms of heavy, dark, unprocessed energy. And I was, you know, young. I, this kind of took me under. After a year of doing this, I was experiencing a lot of just depression, grief, you know, kind of chronic grief. And, um, and I started in therapy. I got my butt into therapy and started working with a Jungian analyst. And it was a lifeline for me at that time. And she, Jungians, of course, are famous for asking you about your dreams. And really, I think the classic Jungian therapy believes that the dreams guide the path, that they know the, um, the way for any human life, that they can guide uh, one's development. And so uh, I started bringing my dreams. And very soon I realized these dreams know so much more than I do. I mean, they were just they were starting that opening process. They had, I had, you know, kind of a suburban middle-class flatline story about my life at that point. And um, the dreams just brought much richer narrative and depth and meaning and emotions. So I became, that's when I became really a, you know, a dream devotee, I guess you could say. <laughs> I realized that they were going to take me out of this underworld that I had found myself in. Thank you for that story. Hmm. Why, why might dream work be especially pertinent to an age of planetary crisis? Oh, my favorite question. <laughs> um, I mean, for one, dreams, you know, in Jung's terms, dreams come from the collective unconscious. And what is the collective unconscious is the stored wisdom of humanity. It's the, the you know, gathered wisdom of tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years of human experience is stored in the collective unconscious. That wisdom, you know, really understands all the patterns of life, all the patterns that people can find themselves in that they can enact, the dreams know these patterns. You know, when we get a personal dream, it's reverberating through this database, this phenomenal database is probably a good image for our time of um, human patterns, human possibilities, human probabilities. And so, you know, I think probably our, uh, the collective unconscious knows the way through this ecological crisis. If there's a place where that knowledge is held, it's probably in the collective unconscious. 
how can humanity change um, to become, you know, back in harmony with, with the planet. That's what we need. We need to reharmonize our species with the ways of the planet. I mean, another answer could be that we're living systems and the planet is a living system and that our dreams help us balance. Jung, Jung used the word compensate, that our dreams compensate for our waking excesses by bringing, you know, the other side of the picture that we're not holding so that as we learn to balance our own personal living system using our dreams as a feedback loop, we start to understand what does it mean to be a balanced living system? And we can begin to apply this knowledge to the other living systems that we encounter, including the planetary living system. Another answer might be that our dreams sensitize us to the energy body, right? To this subtle dimension. And that why we're in this state that we're in is because we have disregarded that subtle information, that subtle balancing inner refinement type of information. And that if we start to pay attention to those subtleties in ourselves, then we can be in, we can be, we can participate in the, the planetary, the other forms of the other life forms and their subtle dimension. We can start to sense into the subtle reality of, of uh, other embodied beings that are, we're, we're in this, thrown in this planet together with. So I think, you know, and they may also give us just direct images. I mean, I, I've written an article that talks about, um, it has a section that looks at dreams of destruction, earth destruction, you know, where there's some kind of mass catastrophe. So dreams aren't afraid of that. They're not afraid of tackling, you know, mass catastrophes. They will depict these types of scenarios probably increasingly. So they give us clues about how to be present to those kinds of realities and, you know, show us that this is part of, part of life on the planet does involve natural disasters. I mean, we're getting a, obviously a, an increase in those, but, um, you know, I've had a series of natural disaster dreams where there was nothing I could do to stop. It was fires, basically. I live in California, so maybe that's why it came in the form of fires that's our biggest threat uh wildfires and in these dreams there was nothing i could do the fire was raging all i could do was stand and be a witness and i mean in the last there was a series of them and in the last one i actually fled but in the earlier ones i was I was aware in one case, the fire was happening, the fire in the dream was happening across a ravine and I was not in any immediate danger, but still there was nothing, I was horrified, but there was nothing I could do to stop the fire. All I could do was witness. And that, you know, is a very non-heroic thing. So that dream was really encouraging me to not be in heroic consciousness. To not, I couldn't save anything. I was, I was small in the face of this 
disaster. You know, you could say, well, that dream was useless, you know, because you couldn't do anything. It didn't show you doing. No, that dream, if we trust the dream, it was showing me the surrender of heroic consciousness of can I just be present and witness and take into my being this disaster, this destruction. And I think that's a, that's probably a first step for all of us. Can we just be present to what we're doing? Can we witness it and let it affect us? Let it stir something in us that's uncomfortable. You know, can I just stay with that? That's all the dream wanted me to do. And, you know, we could, we could, again, the humble thing, right? I can't save anything here. I can't stop it, but I can be present to it. I can feel what these trees are feeling as they're going up in flames, you know? Can I feel that loss of life, um, that tragic loss of life, and let that shift something in me? And then maybe later I have some action I can take based on that experience. But it was not about action in the moment. It was about suspending action and just offering my witnessing presence to, you know, a horrific event. I think that's what the dream was asking me to do. So we have, a, we have, we, if we could stop and, you know, people that are struck by these disasters, I mean, they, I guarantee you their consciousness has changed afterwards. You know, they get, they get elemental reality, the force of elemental reality in a new way. We're not the kings and whatever on the planet, you know, that there are forces much bigger than human beings with all of our sophisticated technology. There's still forces bigger than us, you know, and how do we be present to them? How do we feel awe in the presence of these elemental forces that are being unleashed? I mean, it's truly, it's a, can be a spiritual experience, even even if it's a destructive experience to just witness that amount of force of nature. I mean, it's, 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 it is, it's a spiritual experience to be small in the, to be small in the face of that. Right. For me, it's kind of, kind of become a welcome thing. It's scary at first because the heroic part wants to be able to do something. But I think we, I think we have to surrender a lot of our heroicism and be small in the face of what what's happening. I appreciate the uh, the idea of using dream to call on collective intelligence um, because we're I think we're very much confronted by the fact that our waking intelligence is not sufficient to the task. Mm-hmm. What I noticed in a lot of what you were saying was references to other living systems, you know, other embodied kinds of creatures. We normally think of dreams in a way that's pretty localized to the human nervous system. And we recognize that there's something like feeling and sensitivity in other organisms. But where do you draw the line when it comes to dreams? Like how, how, how widely distributed do you think dreams are into the other species of this planet? Well, you know, we know mammals have been dreaming for some 500 million years or something. I don't know. I mean, evolution, it's very interesting to contemplate that evolution gave us dreams. This, this is a device of evolution. It came into the mammal, you know, the mammal species and 
you could, I mean, you have a dog or a cat, you could see that they're, they're dreaming. They have all the twitching and everything, uh, rapid eye movement, all of that. So mammal, you know, we know mammals dream. I actually did read an article that suspects that reptiles might dream. Um, we know dolphins and I think some other marine species have bilateral sleeping, like one part of one side of the brain, they use the two hemispheres differently. One side is awake while the other side is sleeping and presumably dreaming. The article I read said that it's difficult in reptiles because they have, uh, they have that hybridory kind of nervous system. It's a little different, but so, there's a little bit of research that suggests there may be even be dreaming in reptiles. So we know we share, you know, that this, why did evolution, I don't think evolution made a mistake in giving us dreams. I mean, some people think it's an outmoded, you know, thing of the past. But the truth is, if we don't dream, if we don't sleep and dream, you know, the REM studies show if you wake somebody up every time they start to dream and you do it over a couple of nights, they'll be psychotic in a few days. I mean, they will be in a psychotic state that we have, even if we don't process our dreams the way you and I've been talking about, that still physiologically, we need that experience. It does something and then it's not totally understood why that's the case. And then the other thing is that dreams transport us into other non-human ways of being. I recently had a client who had a dream of being a crow, flying like a crow. She was herself, and then she was the crow, and then she was herself. And uh, the crows, uh, murder of crows got murdered, got killed by a ship in her dream. And one of them survived, and she became that one that survived. And it was mad. It was mad at humanity for taking down its flock members. I mean, you, you have dreams where you enter the mode of being of, of an animal. And I think probably when people lived in the, in nature, close to animals, they had these kind of dreams maybe more often than we do. I mean, we know in indigenous traditions, people become a snake or a lion or a bear or whatever. They have an experience of being inside the consciousness of and body of an, of an animal species. So there's a kind of fluidity, I think. I mean, that dream I shared earlier about going to the far edge of the universe told me that we, that our, that our consciousness can go to, is as big as the universe. It's as simple as that, right? I was at the far edge of the universe. I traveled from here all the way out to where new space was being made. So that's the range of our consciousness. And I think we have to understand what it's like to be in other body forms in order to really respect them and treat them well and bring in the intelligence that, you know, Katniss has or the crow, the crow, you know, the crow experience, the flying experience. You know, many of us have had flying dreams where we have some semblance of what it's like to be a bird. 
so, um, I mean, this is really one of the most beautiful things I think about being a human being is that we don't have to be just a human being. We can, through our dreams and other altered state experiences, participate in modes of consciousness that other other beings have, and I think potentially all of it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, this you know the Kundalini experience obviously is built off the snake, right? That that idea of that spinal column and the energy that runs through the spinal column, the snake as our you know kind of our spinal column ancestor, the vertebrate ancestor that our body forms are built from. So we have these kinships, you know, these deep kinships. Again, if we allow ourselves to open to this embodied dimension, we will enter into other modes of being that are outside of our particular human mode. Talked before about uh, Genlin or Genlin. And uh, this, you know, sort of his basic idea of of using the proprioceptive experience of the body to test out the mental interpretations, looking for these openings that move us uh, incrementally a step forward on our journey. Mm -hmm. um, but what is it that you think is so important in what Arnold Mendel brings into this? Yeah, I, I mean, Arnold Mendel... First of all, he coined the term dream body. And he did that because he noticed he was he noticed that that people's symptoms, that there was a relationship between people's symptoms, physical symptoms and their dreams. So he thought there must be some commonality. And of course, the word symptom and the word symbol have a common root. And the idea is that if you work with the symbolism you can resolve a symptom or at least understand a symptom much better. So uh, he saw this connection now, and I think he was, he of, often was working with people with a disease process. Now I personally would rather preempt the disease by paying attention before it develops into a full-blown symptom. But that's not always possible, you know. So his one of his contributions is how to work with symptoms once they've appeared and use the symbolic world as a way to understand that symptom. He also felt like symptoms were a process, like there's a disease process that's going on in the body. And that process is malleable, that you can shift the course of it by engaging with symptoms symbolically. Um, and he, I mean, his definition of the dream body was that it's a multi, a multi-channel information sender. And it's, I mean, the, the multi-channels, he identified the one you just mentioned, proprioceptive, which is all the felt sense that we've been talking about, the visual channel, which people know because their dreams usually have visual imagery, but there's also an auditory channel. Um, sometimes people receive, you know, verbal messages in their dreams. Or I remember one time I was 
listening to a piece of music and started floating on the waves, the vibrational waves of the music. That was a very auditory dream. I mean, I don't tend to have a lot of those, but I had, you know, that one that I remember and I'm sure others. And then let's see the sensing, feeling, hearing movement. Um, he also kinesthetic movement channel uh, is another channel. So these just different modalities that we process information, visual, auditory, proprioceptive, kinesthetic. And then the world channel, he also talks about the world channel where a synchronicity would be an example of the world channel. But I would say also the world channel, I mean, for me, again, if you get, if you, what's the optimal state of our relationship with the world? Like we're watching now so much conflict in the world so much unrest in the human species, people that cannot adapt to a virus, you know, who resist the restrictions that imposed by a virus outbreak, a, a global virus outbreak. Um, for me, the world channel has to do with how do I harmonize myself with my environment? How do I become live in harmony with it instead of in conflict with it. Not to say that there isn't, there aren't times for conflict. I think there are, but um, it's much more pleasant to be in a harmonized state with the world, the world channel. So he basically uses the world channel as a kind of feedback loop. What feedback is the world giving me about how I'm living? Am I crashing into things? Am I, am I butting up against reality? Or am I flowing with it? That's that's another you know inquiry we can make about our relationship with the world channel. So those were the channels he identified as part of the whole dream body process, dream body work. I mean, his basic idea is that life is a process, right? It's not stagnant, it's a process. If we stagnate it, then you know, we're not. And so that idea that life is a process is actually very similar to living systems theory, that it's it's a process. It needs constant rebalancing. So his dream body work is a way to follow a process. He started out working with dream with disease processes, but, you know, there's obviously healthy processes. So, you know, my preference is I think if you pay attention to the subtle realm you can prevent a lot of dream processes from ever getting started. I think this was the secret of uh, indigenous medicine uh, and a lot of Eastern medicine, pre-Western medicine was to pay attention to the subtle realm with the idea that any disease process starts out small, right? And it builds, it builds into, you know, a full-blown disease, right? But it didn't start out as a full-blown disease. It started out as something subtle. And so if we track it at the subtle level and participate with it at the subtle level, it doesn't need to go into a hardened disease, you know, a hardcore disease that then needs the extreme, more extreme interventions of Western medicine. This is where subtle, subtle energy medicine works. It works at the early phases. If you, it, it's harder to use subtle body medicine once a disease process has become completely entrenched in the physical realm. So that's, this is also, 
he doesn't talk so much about that, but it's, I think you can derive that from his, if you back up the process and really, and this is where daily dream work helps because you're getting the feedback loop every single day. If you work that every single day, I think it doesn't open the door so much to disease processes. Of course, we also have our genetics. I'm not saying, you know, I mean, our genetics have their, its course that it's going to take too. And some of that does involve, you know, genetically informed disease. Uh, I think it's, I'm not trying to uh, obliterate that reality because that is a reality. Uh, but who knows, you know, what working through, I mean, some of that genetic process may also be epigenetic, where there's past trauma from prior generations. If we work out that trauma as it comes to us in our dreams, the, 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 the trauma of our ancestors that our dreams may show us, you know, then I think we can probably shift some of that genetic predisposition as well. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but, you know, these things are, many of these things are fluid and based on the attitude we bring to them or the approach we bring to them, they have, they have some malleability. Something I like in a lot of what I'm hearing in this conversation, um, whether it's synchronicity or treating dreams as more intelligent than us about some things or taking seriously other forms of living systems, there's a sense of, of being in the world fundamentally in the mode of a conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's and that's a very different way of relating to life and the world than imposing, imposing, right? Imposing our will, um, putting nature on the rack and, you know, which is what we've done for the last few centuries, put nature on a rack and extract our secrets and force nature into our will, our bidding. But yeah, I think the old way, the indigenous way was definitely conversational, definitely a, an exchange, you know, and, and the living systems approach brings that back because it recognizes that we're in a constant feedback loop, which is a conversation, right? Um, and then the role of the executive function is not to impose its will, but to, um, you know, be to receive the information that's coming in and process it and act in response to it, not despite it with sort of shutting, you know, shutting out that feedback loop. Yeah, it's a, it is, a, it's a more uh, relational conversational approach. Do you record your dreams? Yes, I do. Because they're very fleeting. They're very, you know, they're subtle. Um, it's easy to lose them. I mean, I, I really try to record them. Um, occasionally you miss one. Uh, yesterday I remembered a dream midday because it had the image of a broken sunglasses in it. And when I got in my car to drive, I went, oh, wait a minute. Why does this sunglasses feel so fresh and vivid to me? And then I remembered the dream, uh, which I hadn't previously. But I do try to record them for safekeeping because they will, they dissipate quickly. and. I also try to record if there's any significant 
body shifts, so energetic body shifts or emotional states that happen with the dream. I try to capture that as well. And so I can go back to it so I can track themes in my dreams, patterns. Sometimes you want to go back to a dream after you've processed it because a later dream seems to be commenting on an earlier dream. But yeah, they, they're, it's easy to lose them. And the other thing I'll say about this hypnopompic state, this awakening state, is if you move, if when you wake up, you move your body, your arms, your legs, your torso, your head, um, you can throw off the dream. This is really where you see that the dream is configured in the body, in the subtle body, in a particular way. And that first gross motor movement kind of throws it out. But if so, if and sometimes we do this, we wake up and we move, we're uncomfortable or whatever. But if you can put yourself back in the position you were in when you were sleeping and dreaming, very often you can your dream recall will come back and the energetic body will come back with that same position. Whereas, you know, the first gross motor movement can literally throw a dream out of your awareness. Uh, so it's very important to, again, try to catch that, go back to the position and rethread the dream from that place, then, then move, you know? Uh, well, and notice also notice what's different. How's, how is my body state different? How is my consciousness altered by the dream? I think, and then rethread the dream, write the dream down, and then you can go to your, go about your business if you need to and come back to it later. Um, but yeah, I, I consider them gems and I don't want to miss any of them. <laughs> you know, when we think about interpreting dreams, we sort of think about it like, um, the experience is very fine-tuned to us and it's very much about us. Like you see the baby and like, oh, that baby is me. This is my dream. But when we think about subtle realms and subtle spaces, there's a discourse around there being subtle entities of various kinds. Do you think dreams include to some degree entities that aren't you, that are from outside the system? That's a good question. You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm schooled to sort of take everything as as me or me related. I mean, I know there's the whole the whole realm of aliens, you know, and the I think the classic one interpretation of alien dreams is that it's a it's a part of myself that's alien to me that is trying to make contact with me, right? I mean, it, you know, as you say, the subtle body, the energy body, presumably in its most open state is very permeable to everything, right? It's it, by, by its nature, it doesn't have boundaries, solid boundaries. So in that sense, you know, what's me and what's not me? I mean, it's it's kind of a fluid dimension. And maybe the question is, you know, how do I work with this energy that's come in? Whether I, not so much whether I label it as me or not me, but it's present in my field of consciousness and my field of awareness. So 
that's an invitation to work with whatever comes into my field of awareness without a label of me, not me kind of thing. Um, that's probably where I would tend to go. That if it comes to me, you might say I'm responsible for it or for having a relationship to it. If it comes into my field of awareness, you know, I can choose to relate to it or not. And if I block it, that's a block, right? That's a blockage. So I think where you, where we get to that very fluid, very open sort of I'm the world or I'm, you know, I have access to a fluid, open sense of the world. Um, that's very close to, you know, kind of an ideal spacious awareness that a lot of the spiritual traditions talk about. Not excluding anything. Like the pragmatism of you've just got to work with it regardless of whether it's categorized as self or other. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't um, know. Yeah. I was just going to say, let's, uh, let's pretend we're almost at the end of this discussion. Did we leave anything out? Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? <laughs> no, I think I think it's been a very good conversation. The one thing we didn't talk about Robert Bosnack's work, uh, who's another person who's uh, forwarded an approach to somatic dream work. And so I could just mention briefly what his approach Please, is. Yeah. So basically, uh it's a facilitated approach, at least you could, once you learn it, you could probably facilitate it for yourself, uh, where the dreamer is invited to tell the dream to a trained facilitator in this approach. It's called embodied dream work. And then the facilitator helps identify, you know, what are the major images or scenes in the dream? maybe five of them, five to seven of them at most, depending on, again, the length of the dream, but these major nodal points in the dream. And then the, the dreamer, uh, after the dream has been told, and these points in the dream, key points in the dream are identified, the dreamer is invited to close their eyes. And it's basically a slow motion approach to those images because the when a dream happens, it happens very quickly. It's very condensed. All of these images come quickly. And so this is in a way an approach to pull it apart and slow it down. And so the, the facilitator then guides the dreamer to go back to each of those key images with their eyes closed and to feel the emotions associated with that image. Again, we don't necessarily feel it when it's all happening so quickly and then to anchor that image in their body where do they feel that image in the body uh and what's the quality of the feeling in the body and again it's it's very it relates to gamlin's work of what's the felt sense of that image and where in where in the body does it live and the dreamer describes that and once that first image is explored, they move on to the other images that have been identified. And again, feel each one, anchor, the word he uses is anchor the image in the body. That Again, this idea that the dream images are configured in the body or the subtle body in a particular way. 
and have knowledge and information that's, you know, may feel fuzzy at first, but it's there. It's definitely there. And then after all of the images have been anchored in the body, the facilitator has them go back through them more quickly. Once they've been identified, feel each one and you go kind of through the body again. You might do that a couple of times. And then Bosnak invites the dreamer to try to feel all of those images at once in the body. So you might have a, you know, tension in your chest and a twitch in your leg and floaty sensation in your head or something, you know, and they're very contrary. They're very different from each other. One part is floating and another part is twitching and another part is, you know, intention. But you try to feel all of those simultaneously. It might involve kind of darting between them quickly in your consciousness until you can try to hold them all at once. Because he feels like once you can hold them all at once, you have something new and complex that has emerged that is definitely outside of the waking personality. This is the material, the waking personality is pushed out. So you're bringing that material back and trying to hold it all together at a somatic level. And um, that something new again will emerge from that process. Uh, it's, a, it's challenging to do at first, but I think it's a very worthwhile process because um, obviously it's, it's going deeper into the body part and then into the complexity of holding all of those images. So what it fosters is a more complex consciousness uh, that's holding this greater complexity. Even if you just experience it for a moment or two, that, that brings something new to the, to the living system, to the person. So that's the one pro approach we didn't talk about. Um, that's yeah, I'm glad you brought that in. Thank you. It sounds like a very interesting approach. And I, uh, well, I think we've done a good job of very fluidly moving around the intersection of uh, the dreaming, the subtle and the somatic. Uh, so thank you very good. much for doing this conversation with us, Karen. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Layman. And um, I'm glad to be here and share this. And I appreciate your, your interest in this topic. Mm -hmm.